Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 15, uh, and we'll be in uh, verses 18 through 27, uh, and we'll actually spill over a little bit before and after just to gain context. Um, I, I do have a question for you before, before we start. Um, how do you respond to being confronted with your sin? Maybe let me ask it a different way. How do you respond to being told you're wrong? Well, if we were all honest, uh, and we ought to be, our first move is always to, to defend, right? I mean, we just can't help ourselves. It's obvious it's got to be the other person. It's got to be something that they, if they just had more information, they would understand. If they, if they just, I mean, I have yet to meet anybody, and I've been doing this for a while, and as many of you know, I'm, I'm not beyond being confrontational. Uh, and, and, and really, I, I don't enjoy it near as much as some of you think I do. It just comes with the job. Uh, and it comes with being a Christian, actually. Uh, Matthew 18, it tells us, Matthew uh, chapter 6 also tells us that we are to keep short accounts. And some of you m might not should even take communion this morning because you haven't. Uh, I don't know of anybody in that category, so everybody just relax a little bit. Uh, you know your own heart. But... <laughs> But this is something we don't take very seriously and therefore leave it to so few to do it. We're just bad at it. We're like dancing with two left feet all the time. But one of the things that we ought to be able to do is not fear being wrong because what's guaranteed in your finitude? You're wrong. All of you about something. Steve Brown says it well and I can live with this. He says, hey, listen. I'm wrong about 50%, okay? Your job is to figure out which 50%. And so uh, it, being wrong is not the worst thing that can happen to us. We are going to sin. And would that we had brothers and sisters that loved us so much that they would risk the relationship, they would risk that response, they would risk my defenses to come and tell me, at least lovingly, I mean, obviously there's ways you can come out of the gate that make this harder or easier, but, but to love each other well enough that we would be willing to say something is wrong because what's at stake? This is, this, is the, this is what's really important. What's at stake? Quite possibly your eternity. Quite possibly your eternity. Now, this is not to unsettle those of you who know yourselves to be saved and go against assurance, but our unwillingness to confront even those we love tells me what we're not going to do with those we don't hardly know. See, are you going to be missional if you are unwilling to even say to the people you care most about and have the most chips with anything about how they're doing? Well, chances are no. I just don't see us being more willing to confront strangers or neighbors or distant family members if we're unwilling to have any sort of relational capital with those closest. Now, I say all that to say this is critical because if you can't see this in your own heart, then you start setting up that false dichotomy of us versus them. Right? I'm glad that it was pointed out throughout our liturgy this morning that we were once enemies of God. You got to remember we didn't like being confronted either. And what's the main thing Jesus came to do, by the way? What's the main thing he came to? Got to be one Christian here, just law of averages. It's America, it's Georgia. What did he come to do? 
He came to, to save God's people, to reconcile that which separates us from God, which, by the way, is what? What separates us from God? Knowledge? No, what separates us from God? Sin does. And if, I'm, if, if Jesus came to show the gap, and he came to show the gap to condemn it, right? Right? No, he did not. He came to bridge it. He came to make a way for us to be restored to God, and that's critical that we not forget what the mission is, which has an impact on why we are still here, which is going to have a supreme impact on how you hear what Christ is saying to both his disciples and to us in the power of the Holy Spirit through John 15 this morning. Now, remember where this is located. This is in that final conversation that he's having with the disciples before he goes to the cross. And as he knows the time is drawing near, he's trying to say the things that are going to be most important to and for them. And he's washed their feet. He has shared with them this, the, the necessity to love one another. Remember, our assurance of pardon precedes this. The world will know who you are by the love you have for one another. That's why if we are unwilling to love each and, and remember, loving each other does not mean we don't confront sin or brokenness, or that which is destroying us. Right? Can we all agree on that? If we can agree on that, I, I suspect we'd start seeing it some, in more measure than just leaving it to the guy that gets paid to do it, who always has to be the bad guy. That's one way you want to love me? Don't make me the bad guy all the time. It'd help. Really. And so, uh, it's critical that we understand the mission, it's critical that we understand what Jesus is saying these things for because now in 15, he's also going to do it in 16, he'll do it in 17 as well, he's going to drop the penny. So it sounds easy when it's like, hey, you guys just if, love each other and the world will take notice. If he just stopped there, it would have been fine, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But he didn't. He said, and that is going to anger the world. And they are going to treat you as they have treated me. Which, by the way, I don't like either. I don't want to preach this sermon this morning any more than you want to hear it. But we got to hear it, and we got to hear it in the right key so that we understand all the resources that we have and how it's going to be evidence of God's great love for us and what can be the fruit of that suffering. So listen to what Charles Simeon says by way of introduction. He says, Well might our Lord enjoin his disciples to love one another. For if they be not united in affection towards each other. Did you hear that? If we are not in a, united in affection toward each other, they will in vain look for any love in the world. So if we can't love each other in union with Christ then what union with the world is going to produce a greater love? You've answered rightly, none. Now that's not to say there's not things we don't enjoy in the world. Then that's not to say that worldly people don't love, don't hear it as a zero sum. But we're using love as a very specific, biblically defined thing, which is to be reunited with God, though our sin had separated us, in and through the person and work of Christ. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word as we turn to the text, this is John 15, 18 through 25. And make sure you, you, you listen at what he's saying. 
especially out of calling them to love one another. Because he just said, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So this is coming out of that. That's very important. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I had said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, Hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Now we need to navigate this a little bit because it sounds like some interesting things are being said. So let's, let's walk through and do the grammatical work of following the text here. He says, if the world hates you, so it almost sounds like, hey, it's something that may or may not happen, but as the text goes on, what, in, what penny ends up dropping? They will. See, the if is not predicated on what the world is going to do. The if is predicated on whether or not you are in union with Christ. Because if you're in union with Christ, then what? The world will hate you. If the world doesn't hate you, then who are you? You're worldly. It's kind of a provocative way to put it. Think about it. He's talking to the disciples, though, one of which is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. So he's saying, if the world hates you, but really has more to do with whether or not you are actually in union with him, then it's not personal, right? It's so hard for us at times when we get tangled up in stuff to not take it personal. You may say, well, if they're saying it to me, that feels kind of personal after all. And we're not talking about just any old hatred right? Uh, those who hate you because you're an American is not necessarily the same thing. They're not, they're, you can't conflate these. Those who hate you because of uh, your economic status, that's not necessarily the same thing. You, you can't equate these things. This is a specific hatred because of the glory that you bear. Now, remember from uh, 1 Peter, what's Satan looking to do? completely eradicate the glory of God. He doesn't need followers. In fact, it's not hard to follow Satan as it turns out. All you got to do is just not follow Jesus and you're following Satan, right? And so it doesn't take much as it turns out. But he's looking to eradicate completely the glory of God. And so if you bear that image in a way that is glorifying to him, which is most glorious when displayed in redemption and union with Christ, don't forget that, then the world is going to hate you whether you open your mouth or not. So this is where it gets kind of tricky because we think we can sometimes love our way out of suffering. Uh, how many of you can say, I have experienced genuine love in my life? And how many of you would say, and it never hurt? 
it never hurt. Because if you can, you didn't experience genuine love. Genuine love always costs us something at some point and at some time, right? We've all experienced it. You cannot love genuinely uh, without it being costly to you at some point and some time. And so what Christ is saying here is the world's hatred of you is because of me. Now, how does that change, if you think about it, how does that change how we respond to the world? If it's not personal, and it really is because they hate Jesus, then what weapons are we to use in response? The means of grace. See, this is where we can love our way into a suffering that could actually make the family get bigger. Would that that would be our greatest desire. He's actually going to get to this in verses 26 and 27 when he tells them that the helper is coming. He's going to drop another penny, that their, their suffering actually is a missional aspect of their calling. And so it, it's critical that we recognize that if the world hates us not because of who we are personally, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to take it personal, which grants a critical distance. Now, let me pause for a second. How easy is all this junk I'm saying? I know it's offensive I said junk, but that's what you were thinking. It's, and so we need critical distance, don't we? And what grants us the critical distance from those who are so angry, so shrill at who we are and what we're trying to say and hold them accountable to? The gospel itself. Your hope in that you can't lose your salvation. You can actually grieve all that, but not as those who are without hope. You actually can apply the means of grace. Let me give you a for instance here, right? Think about someone who is struggling, genuinely struggling with some form of gender dysphoria. How many people do you honestly think just wake up one morning and say, I really would like to make the rest of my life as hard as humanly possible? Now, I know some people, you know, there's a lot of spectrum here, but the bell, main part of the bell curve in this situation is not this just this woke-up choice. And what would it look like if, even though they were shrill against what we may say or try to call them account to, for the first move that we would make is say to say to them, listen, before we get to any of the particulars, I just want you to know that I am genuinely sorry for what you are going through. And I would love to come alongside you and walk with you through this. But let me be clear. I'm going to point you to the Lord our God. Because I, I know that's where the greatest freedom is. And though the world may put its arm around you and say, no, go deeper and dive deeper into these things and call yourself whatever you want to call yourself because that's the greatest freedom of all is to be unhinged from everything, even your humanity. We might be able to in a very costly fashion come alongside some people and give them the opportunity to see the beauty of the gospel. What if that was our first move? Instead of our first move being, get away from me, you disgust me. We could say that on any number of issues, couldn't we? And so that's just one, uh, and I won't go through any others, but think about how it would change radically who we are and what we are if we could gain that critical distance 
to genuinely come alongside people who are hurting because the truth of the matter is, I don't know of anybody in this world who's not hurting at some level. And what if we were the people who had the eyes to see and the ears to hear their sorrow and their brokenness and could actually offer something tangible and genuine that could transform their eternity as you have been given? So remember, the hatred that is spewed at you for your Christianity is not because you. And if it ever is because of you, that's wrong. It's because of Jesus. And that is critical for us to remember so that we recognize that they aren't our enemies. They're God's enemies. And who is victorious no matter what? God is. But why hasn't he went ahead, and this was from 2 Peter 3, why hasn't he gone ahead and ended it? Because he wants the family to get bigger and bigger. And that means that his people must encounter more of his enemies and offer the beauty and transformation of the gospel. And so he goes on to let them know. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This calls back to mind John chapter 3, Uh, where it says that the Spirit has transformed them into a different substance than is of the world, right? We have been transformed into uh, um, the, the people of God in such a way that we are no longer of the world. We are not of their substance. So yes, they they actually get it. No matter how hard you try to hide it, it ends up coming out some kind of way. Praise be to God. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And so again, he's, he's, I've said this to you before. If I go through it, with the exception of crucifixion and separation from God, which he carries and puts totally upon himself, but if I go through the other part, you're going to go through the other part. Now, this is critical because think about if we could, if we could find a way to not suffer how many of you would say, I, I, wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even think about it because I'm so holy, I'm so pious? If I offered you a genuine way out of suffering that would also allow you a genuine way into heaven, you'd take it. You'd be a fool not to. See, Jesus knows our hearts. We long to be better than him. We long to not have to go through what he went through. And yet that robs us of a uniqueness of of communion, not in this table sense, but in the relational sense, that is unique to the time between the now and the not yet. We have a unique opportunity to commune with Christ in suffering that will no longer be possible when we get to heaven. I don't know that we appreciate that enough. And so he's saying, remember, this is how you will know who you are. This is part of the mark of you being mine you will suffer for my name's sake. And in so doing, that should assure you of your identity. And so he goes on. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he gives them a little bit of comfort in saying, listen, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But also, if they kept my word, you know you have a family member, an ally. This is how you will know be able to differentiate who is of the world and who is of me, right? Who actually exalts Christ 
John says it well in 1 John when he says, test the spirits. This is something I don't see us do very often, especially when it comes to lots of different things. And since we're talking about the Holy Spirit, when it comes to certain charismatic things, are we asking whether, when we see a miracle, we just think, well, that's got to be of God. Well, do remember that the man of lawlessness, this is from 2 Thessalonians, he performs miracles too. His kingdom, which is dying, will thrash about and flash and do things that look a lot like what we can do. The question is, is what you're witnessing, is what is going on exalting to Christ and Christ alone. Not because you say it does, but because it actually does. And so there's a way in which we can begin to differentiate and know. We don't have to, we don't have to uh, uh, be the like Christian KGB or CIA and, and like test and send certain circumstances. It's, it's usually pretty evident. Whose life is exalting of Christ? Who keeps his word? Who loves the Lord their God and loves their neighbor? Even if it's a struggle, who does that? Well, those who do, you can well know they're allies in all this. Praise be to God, it's not just us. And he goes on to say, um, but, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And he's even saying, look, this isn't even about me either. It's because they hate God who sent me. So Jesus is making it very clear. This is not, this is, this is, I came for a purpose which was not even my own, which he said many times, which shows the great humility of our Savior. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Let me tell you what that's not saying. It's, you could read that and think, well, man, if, if you hadn't showed up, everybody would be saved, right? You showing up messes everything up. No, not at all. In fact, what it means is if he doesn't show up and he doesn't convict of sin, then we don't know what our problem is and we die in our sin, judged for eternity. If the prophets don't come, if the law doesn't come, if the priests don't come, if, if the pastor teachers don't come, if Christ doesn't come, if we don't go and share the gospel, then people will not of their own accord go, hey, I think there's a problem. So he had to come so that they would know there was a problem that was killing them whether they knew it or not. Right? And so he comes so that they will know that they are perishing in their sin so that they can't say, and he goes on to say, so that they would be without excuse. So they would be without excuse from being separated from their God because they've been so overwhelmed in sin and darkness. If he doesn't come then Satan wins. Darkness wins. So he's saying, I had to come. But know that he comes knowing he also has to die. He comes knowing he will have to suffer the fate of a man. Perfect though he was, his suffering was no less. In fact, there's a great argument that it was far greater because of his perfection. And so he goes on to say yet again that they hate him and they hate his father. And he says, but this word is written in the law that it must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. There's two different places in the Psalms where it says that the, the people of God are just, they're just the people of God being the Jews at that time that they were going to just ignore. 
And they were going to hate him without cause, that they would reject the Messiah, that they would be part of crucifying him. And just so you don't think, well, that's their problem. Uh, Romans 3, which also quotes the Psalms, says it's everybody's problem. Everything that bears the image of God that is under the curse actually fulfills this prophecy to some extent. We do. We hate God without cause. It's interesting, when I was a radical anti-theist, um, a fire-breathing radical anti-theist, um, if you pressed me and asked me, why do you hate God? The most that I could give you, it really, uh, it wasn't some grand reason. Even though I'd read the philosophers, I'd read the atheists up to that time, Dawkins and Hitchens not quite come along at that point, um, Praise God, if I'd have had those guys in hand, I'd have been even worse, I'm sure. But what I had in hand was bad enough. Bertrand Russell was bad. Kai Nielsen was bad, um, as it was. And so um, I didn't, even though I'd read all this philosophy and I'd read all of this stuff, my argument was never reasoned. It was always emotional. And it was because I had suffered without choice. That if there's a benevolent God in this world, and he should have asked my opinion about who my parents were before I was born. <laughs> wow, Mr. Arrogant. That's kind of, I said that, by the way. I thought it was pretty powerful. This locked box you can't get out of. I also would say, hey, if there's a benevolent God in this world, then somebody explain to me why it is. Where was he when that older boy did what he did to me, making me his instrument? His vessel for pleasure, making me a vessel of displeasure. Where was he exactly on the day that my drunken grandmother almost choked me to death over a Ghostbusters three-quarter shirt that she had bleached? Where was he on the day that my Uncle Randy, who was the one Christian in our family, suffocated to death under the weight of ALS? Show me your benevolent God. And I'll show you mine, who's not benevolent. Now, that sounds all powerful. That sounds pretty crazy. But all that's emotion. Now, you may say, wait a minute now, your uncle dying, that's pretty straightforward, and your grandmother choking you to death ain't emotion. Yes, those are data points. Those are, but, but, but the real issue for me was, how dare you make me suffer? I didn't know the world was falling. I didn't know that I was fallen. I didn't know that my grandmother was broken and fallen. I didn't know that my Uncle Randy was broken and fallen and that this world, if what we are left to is biological determinism, nobody gets out alive. And so what we have to recognize is that so often what's being raged against is really the fulfillment of prophecy that the arguments that are being made are often emotional as opposed to reason, which is why this next part of the verse becomes critical to us in terms of its missionality. If we recognize that most people hate God because of something they've endured or been through, then we have an opportunity to come alongside them, not a, a, make an apologetic in full as if, oh, if you just had the right information, you're going to be okay. No, you have to have the right encounter with the living God. You have to have the right transformation 
in the baptism and power of the Holy Spirit to make you new again. You, are, you will need to be reborn, as it turns out. And so that is what we are ambassadors of. And it is a costly calling. Now you may say, well, wait a minute now. He's just talking to the disciples. Maybe this was just for the 12. Yeah, First and Second Peter. James. First, second, and third John, Revelation. This is our lot too. For everybody who comes after, at some point, you will suffer for the stands that you take, right? Our, our middle school and high school students, you already feel the weight of this, right? I'm, I'm fascinated by the culture that says, I don't want to stand out, but notice me. Oh, stop noticing me. Notice me. Don't notice me for being good. Notice me for being different, just like everybody else, right? So what's the most popular shoe right now in your people group, which is fascinating to me? What's the shoe? You're wearing it. Yeah, Vans. Vans. The thing from 30 years ago that we thought was awesome, right? But now, I, I mean, it is fascinating to, to sit, sit at a coffee shop and just study people's shoes. You learn a lot about the world just studying their footwear. Um, maybe not. Uh, I, I saw you look at your shoes. You're like, oh, my game's sweet. It's not Vans, though. Um, and so, <clears throat> so it's fascinating to me that, that everybody's wearing them in different colors and different ankle lengths and so forth, Right? because we got to throw in a little variety. Something from 30 years ago or more. And we want to be noticed not for being good. We want to be noticed for being different, which everybody's trying to be different, and the race to actually find a niche somewhere is getting more and more difficult, isn't it? Think about just the 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 struggle in terms of this issue of any sort of sexuality and how we think about it talk about it uh, in terms of of drugs and alcohol substances of any and every kind I know I'm starting to sound like this old fire breathing preacher from like 1920 but it's still the issue by the way nothing's new since east of eden but the problem is now we're trying to blend so much with it especially within our middle school and high schools and by the way it's not just them it's all the rest of us too we just have different flavors and different things that we're, we're peddling this way and that. But it's important that we recognize that Jesus said this was going to cost you. Now, I'm not saying you've got to run down the hall and tell everybody they're sinners because they're wearing the same shoes. Please don't. That would be weird. <laughs> well, what I am telling you is that there are things by which you should be set apart you should be willing to be made fun of because here's what's interesting. If you can weather that first storm, what you become, and this is true for college students as well, what you become is an incredible resource in your peer groups because, and let's be real here for a second, is there no cost to engaging in sexual things at 12 13 or 14 or 15? Is there no cost? And who are they going to want to talk to? Their parents? Their church leaders? Who are so aged and don't understand anything. They don't, they don't even know how to make a, a, a chap's nap. <laughs> right? Is that a, this may not be a thing. 
I know it's Snapchat. I'm not that bad off. But, and you don't want me on Snapchat. I have way too wicked a sense of humor and none of, nobody gets it. And it would be dark. Uh, but it's, it's important that you recognize if you can weather the storm, you become a resource because all of the things that people are telling you are the way in which you can be loved and noticed and important are actually destructive. And they're going to come looking for somebody to talk to. Somebody who can give them forgiveness and redemption. Otherwise, the options become self-harm, suicide, further going into the darkness to try to cover the pain. We run and we run and we run. Would be that the people that we have in our midst would be resources for people to go to that, that they wouldn't hear first, you stinking filthy sinner, how dare you come to me? I need to polish my purity ring. No, no, would that they would be able to come and what we would do is what Christ did for us. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice when redemption and reconciliation comes. Offer up our own broken cup for the opportunities of others to be redeemed and to know that there is hope. Just think if, if you future generations coming through here, that was your ethos, what would the church look like? Because I'm here to tell you, you're inheriting a church that had by and large failed in too many respects. They haven't failed in toto because Christ will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. There are people who are doing this over the age of 30. But unfortunately, you're inheriting uh, the, the scars, which we all do, by the way. My generation inherited the scars of televangelism. We inherited the scars of the megachurch. Those things were all bad, but they did a lot of damage. And prior to them, they inherited the liberalism of the 70s and the 60s. And prior to that, they inherited the racism of the 30s and 40s and 50s. And prior to that, they inherited the Scopes Monkey trial. And on and on it goes. There's always something in this broken and fallen world. And the good thing is that something is mission. That doesn't change, though the devil tries lots of different ways to destroy the glory. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this. As Jesus' disciples and friends, we receive his peace, his love, and his joy. But we, also, we must also participate in the inheritance he receives from the world. The legacy of the world to Christ is its enmity, scorn, rejection, and hatred. So what did he just say? To get the one, you also will get the other. It's all part of it. So, what are some ways in which you have experienced the hatred of the world because of your union with Christ? This is not from that neighbor who throws his leaves in your yard or lets his dog come over and ruin your fica or what, what fisc, fescue. I don't even know what kind of grasses there are. The chaps gnat. Uh... Now, I'm talking real persecution because of who you are in Christ. And even better, because we know it's a guarantee, what are you doing to prepare for being persecuted and hated because of your relationship with Christ? Because if you're not prepared for it, for those of you who've experienced it, it is devastating. 
Because it often comes from within your family. It often comes from within your friend group. It often comes very, very close to home, doesn't it? And so you need to be prepared. Now, this is not to be neurotic about it or weird. Just admit in your prayers, Lord, I know there may come a time that I will have to suffer for your sake. Would you make me a ready vessel, make, make me ready to be your servant, that I would not dishonor you? That's simple enough, isn't it? And there may be even more specific things that you have that you could pray. But if you're not preparing for it, it will lay you low when it comes. And it's coming in any variety of ways. That's not a political statement. That is a communal statement. If you are around broken people at all, sooner or later, it comes. Turn back to the text and see what the solution that Christ offers. But... When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's telling them, take heart. Don't let suffering cause you to depart from your mission. It's part of it. It comes with the territory, right? And so he's saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come to you. Remember what he, don't forget what he had said previously in 14. He's going to dwell in you forever. So he's a resident. He's a constant advocate, help, comfort to you. This is true also of you who are any age and profess Christ. And so it's important that we recognize that the mission is still what is paramount. That we are to carry on Christ's mission further than he did. Remember, the entirety of his ministry was in a one-by-one-mile square. Whose job is it to carry it to Judea, Samaria, and the world? Ours. And the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's interesting. This relationship is, to use a term all of you have learned from venom, symbiotic. Right? It is symbiotic. It means that we essentially are one together in this mission. The Spirit needs us as vessel, and we need the Spirit as convicting, truth-pointing, guiding force. Without us, it's left to the rocks to cry out. With us, it can find its way into the whole world. And so he's trying to get them to understand that your suffering is not a sign that you've done something wrong. It is a sign that you are on mission. And the world raging against you is because you actually are doing what you were created to do, which is displaying the glory of God. And you will be filled with the Spirit. And he will be the Spirit of truth to grant everything that's needed so that it is not on you but it is in you and will work through you. And so all of this good gift comes to us from both the Father and the Son because they love us, because he loves us. Listen to what Merrill Tenney says about this from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. He says, the coupling of the witness of the Spirit with that of the disciples defines their reciprocal relationship. 
Without the witness of the Spirit, the disciples' witness would be powerless. You understand that? Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we are powerless to accomplish anything. How many of you have had the experience of arguing someone to the truth online and it stuck? <laughs> do, you believe, do you honestly believe it happened? I want, I want that person's name. I want to follow up with them. <clears throat> it's not just online either, is it? How many of you have argued someone in person that it wasn't just them saying, fine, I just don't want to talk to you anymore. That you've actually genuinely argued them to anything. Without the work, if the Spirit's not at work, I'm not saying we can't argue. I'll be your huckleberry. But it's not saying that we can't argue, but it is to say that we have to recognize what really must happen in order for someone to be transformed. This is very comforting, actually, for you parents who love your children. Um, but it is not, you will not save them. I don't care how hard you try. But you are to be obedient and keep the Lord before them all their days, right? This is great for you kids who are wondering when your parents are going to get saved and come around to your way of thinking. This is great for all of us who genuinely care about other people, that it's the Spirit who transforms. And so that means that our greatest weapon in all of this is prayer. And would that we would become a more dependent and prayerful people as evidence of our belief in that. And he goes on to say, with the disciples' witness, the Spirit would be restricted in his means of expression. Now, I know some of your hackles just went up because, the wait a minute, sovereign, omnipotent member of the Trinity <laughs> restricted by its own choice. This is the choice that the Trinity made to make a vehicle. Now, remember, there's a fail-safe. If we don't do it, then creation will cry out. I don't know what that's going to look like have no earthly idea, which is why I'm trying not to see it happen, because that means I'd have to be really disobedient in order to see the rocks cry out. Because what you don't know if you're not careful, and we read this this morning in prayer, when the rocks cry out, what they're crying out is against the people who remain silent. Because in Joshua, it was a rock that stood in testimony against them if they were to go against the Lord. So often we think that's kind of a cute way, maybe springtime, Easter, when the junk, look, the junk wolves are crying out. No. No, for the rocks to cry out means we have to be so disobedient that judgment is falling on God's people. So it is incumbent upon us to be the vessel that we were saved for and created to be. So what are some ways in which you are bearing witness to Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in your various spheres of influence? Now, now's not the time for you to go getting all falsely humble. Well, you know, I just, I share it so smoothly, I don't even know what's happening. I mean, it just, just comes off me in such waves. I, I mean, it's just amazing. No, that's just Drakkar by Noir. And so, I'm glad one person got that. Thank you. Uh, and so... It is, it is worth you asking the question, not so you can notch things and think yourself greater, but so you can celebrate the Lord at work where you are. 
in and through you so that you can pray more specifically about what comes next in these various circumstances where the Lord is breaking through in someone's life. Do remember, all of heaven breaks out in a party when one person comes. It's not, and so many of us make the arrogant move in our minds. So I got to save the whole world. No, you don't. It's not your job. Your job is to take up the means of grace where you are and to love those around you who the Lord has sovereignly placed in your midst. Tunisia is not your problem at current. And don't think you're so awesome that Tunisia needs you particularly. But do pray for Tunisia. It's not good there. But you follow what I'm saying? Too often, we cut ourselves off before we can even get started by trying to oversell what we think we're capable of. Would that we would love our families well first. You want to you get started on this? Love your wife as Christ loved the church, washing her with the water of the word. And when you've done that so amazingly that you're, you're like, all right, I think she's good. And no, I'm just kidding. It's an ongoing thing. Love your children as the next generation that have been given to you as a gift. Wives, respect your husbands, build them up, call them to be men of God. Hold them accountable to the scripture because you know it. Love your neighbors, love your friends, love your coworkers. And if, that's an, if, you, if you still got time on your hands, then move out from there. So what are you doing to cultivate your ability to share your witness to Christ's work in your life? This is, please don't hear this as a technique question. Because I'm afraid that's what we do. Right? We're looking for, what's the shortcut? What's the shortest way to share this stuff so I don't have to do like 15 or 20 meals and a lot of hours and, tech and all that stuff? What's the, I'm not totally against technique. But I think we ought to relate first and technique ought to be secondary. Right? Because nobody wants to be a project. I can tell you right now, the FAITH outline wasn't going to work with me as radical anti-theist. It was going to be a relationship, and that's exactly what it was. It was a woman who, I don't know about her theology, the correctness of her theology, but man, she, she every day shared the gospel with me at work. Her name was Gwen. I called her Mama Gwen. And Mama Gwen would say, boy, when you turn, it's going to be Saul to Paul, which I thought was a little bit overstated and still so. At the time, I didn't know what it meant. I thought changing your name by one letter really doesn't change a whole lot, so I think she's crazy. But she had the final laugh, actually. She gets to call me son in a way that means something totally different than what she called me before. And one of the reasons that I endured Mama Gwen is because I knew that woman loved me. I said some of the meanest stuff you can say to somebody, and them still laugh and put their arms around you and say, boy, there ain't nothing you're going to do to make me love you any less. And man, I wanted that to be true. More than anything in this world, I wanted that to be true. And guess what? It is, and it was, and it will be. So this is more about relationship than technique. Use technique to cultivate relationship. Uh, don't hear me wrongly. Sometimes there is a, a good need for understanding apologetic arguments so that you can engage some of the questions that people have. 
But what I'm telling you is most of the questions that people have really have an emotional undercurrent that you've got to get to and untangle before any of that other stuff's going to matter anyway. Most of the time. So may we be a people who are cultivating our ability to, to suffer for God's glory so the family gets bigger. And here's what John 15, 18 through 27 teaches us at least. That we will suffer the persecution and hatred of the world because of our union with Christ. You just, you just will. And the Holy Spirit will help us to endure in love as we bear witness to Christ at work in us. Notice the dichotomy. The people of God are called to evidence who they are by their love for one another. The world will reveal itself by its hatred for the people of God. You see the difference? You see how us matching hatred with hatred doesn't show a difference. Us offering cheap grace for cheap love is not going to reveal the difference. But us in firm love that is bound by the banks of the river of the gospel itself in Scripture, an enduring love, a persevering love, a confident and hopeful love, that, that can change things. So what a gift that we get to come to the table this morning and be reminded of how deeply our Savior loved us. That he was willing to suffer immeasurably in a way that we will never ever be able to remotely understand and praise God we can't understand the depth of this suffering. How great is it that we get to this morning have our faith nourished by the helper who descends on our behalf just as Christ descended to lift us up before the throne this morning as we take common elements, bread and juice. Let me remind you that if you are not a professing Christian, this, this, this is not a good lunch. In fact, it's a really bad lunch for you. You could actually eat to judgment. If you have uh, uh, unforgiveness that you're harboring towards someone else, how can you take of the table of forgiveness? Because that means you think you're God and you're not. And so if you have issues of unforgiveness, you need to let the elements pass by for now, work on it, and come boldly to the table next time. There's no one in here that I know that's under church discipline, but if you are for some reason under church discipline at your home church, you also need to let the elements pass by until that's reconciled, and we'll be happy to walk with you and help you with that, if necessary. But for everybody else who claims Christ as Savior, who recognizes that they just really don't want to suffer, but it's probably going to come, you need this, this nourishment. You need your faith to be built up. For those of you who have hard things in front of you that you know you need to glorify God and it's going to be incredibly hard given the circumstances. You need this bread and juice to help you to persevere in seeking to glorify the Lord our God. For those of you who sinned just this morning, you hadn't really had enough time to get it all cleaned up. Well, if you're in Christ, it was cleaned up a long time ago. If you are repentant of that, and know that you need to work on and grow in that, you need this bread and juice to remind you of who and whose you really are. Because the devil, he's going to try to whisper low 
and say, you don't deserve this. And he's right. You don't. But Christ made it possible for you to receive it as gift. Amen?